0: Imagine you find yourself in the central square of a small village in a foreign country. Tied up against the wall are 20 villagers, and in front of them several armed soldiers in uniform. One of the soldiers turns out to be the captain, and explains that the villagers are a random group of inhabitants who, after recent protests against the government, are just about to be killed to deter future protesters. However, since you're an honoured visitor from another land, the captain is happy to offer you a privilege of killing just one of the villagers yourself. If you accept, then as a special mark of the occasion, the other villagers will be let off. It is clear to you that any attempt to overpower the soldiers will mean that you and all of the villagers will be killed. The men against the wall and the other villagers understand the situation and are begging you to accept. What should you do?
1: Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Paco Allen. I'm Mark Sanders. And I'm Chad Allen.
2: So what do you guys think? Kill one of the
0: villagers? It seems um, uh, that's going to be the best outcome. For everyone involved, everyone seems to be on the same page, right? I how, guess. How big's the village?
2: <laughs> you mean like in total? Yeah. And what is their main export? right, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: twenty-five people. Mm, yeah, and what is their main export? Coffee. Hmm. Delicious coffee. Delicious. <laughs> are these are are these villagers happier, or, or are they like working under? extremely poor conditions to produce coffee for the industrialized world um, would they be happier dead than working <laughs> than slaving away in their in the coffee fields and no. the coffee mines they would rather be alive than okay. dead
0: but but you have actually just saved um uh 19 people's lives right? by killing this one person for sure you've just said you've saved you you're you're, you're good i'm here so, right? mark you've <laughs> <laughs> mark you you've 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 just shot someone i'm and i'm wearing the medal to, to show how much all the other people uh, love me
1: for it, all the wives, the mothers, and yeah, the right now, right now at gunpoint, the surviving villagers are erecting a statue in Mark's <laughs> memorial. Yeah. I, to be honest, I don't think this is the first time this has happened. They seem to be all very calm about it. <laughs> right, Okay. Yeah. The last time this happened, somebody made the wrong choice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. They mean, lost 20 people. A quarter of their. Left. Left. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Paco, would you like to kill a villager? That seems like a different question than what you proposed, <laughs> <to> Mark. <laughs> no, I wouldn't like to kill a villager. The question is, am I going to? Um, I mean, in the safety, uh, in the in the safe confines of this podcast room, then I, the answer is yes. Yeah, I think that that's the tricky thing about this is the theoretical and hypothetical conversation versus what are you doing? Right. You're standing there, having to pull the actual trigger
2: well and that's why this thought experiment was written in the first place so do you
1: what do you do don't you're not
2: off the hook oh <laughs> no i was just gonna oh, okay. talk about philosophy and then not yeah. answer the question did you murder no i don't one of think, these i don't
1: i would not kill one of the villagers. interesting <laughs> god damn it you did more research than we did we? <laughs> man what's what's the catch <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so so this thought experiment was actually written by uh bernard williams Um, who was a critic of a moral uh, theory generally known as utilitarianism. Um, Utilitarianism is a a form of consequentialism. So consequentialist moral theories focus on the outcomes of our actions and uh, attempting to maximize the goodness of the outcomes of those actions. And in, in the case of utilitarianism specifically, um, we focus on maximizing utility um, where utility is generally defined as happiness or pleasure or it's, the or the, the the lack of or the pain, absence of pain absence and displeasure pain. right so you're trying to maximize happiness minimize pain and a utilitarian is looking at the maximization of utility across the entire, universe of sentient beings like what's what's uh, if you were to
0: combine the 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 total positive versus the the smallest negative like the overall net yeah
2: positive exactly so that's what you're trying to maximize and so if you're if you're a utilitarian then it seems like the thing that you should do in this scenario is kill one of those villagers because the net pleasure or net happiness or net utility um is, you know, kind of like 19 to 1, basically. So
0: so just going back to your answer, so is there is there a take where um, if you don't do anything, it's as if you weren't there, and if you weren't there, those people would have been killed without your intervention or responsibility at all anyway?
2: Sure, and that's kind of one of the things that Bernard Williams says, is that, um, you know, there's a difference between you acting to kill someone which is what you would have to do in this scenario, versus um, you are not being there at all, right? Like you, the fact that the fact that you have to make this decision to kill someone, and that you have to kill someone, is important because you then become the agent of not only the positive outcome, but the negative outcome, which is the death of this one person. So he says, I'll just read you a quote, which maybe will say it better than what I said. So that he says that um, there's a crucial moral distinction between a person being killed by me and being killed by someone else because of an act or a mission of mine. The utilitarian loses that distinction, turning us into empty vessels by means of which consequences occur rather than preserving our status as moral actors. So... You know, I mean, this and this is one of the critiques of utilitarianism in general, is that it just kind of turns us into, um, you know, sort of like utility calculating algorithmic robots who have to be constantly doing the math on whether our actions are producing net positive utility. Um, and it sort of strips us of our um, status as actual like moral agents and we're just kind of like utility calculators
0: it sounds like a a, a plot device for a, a sci-fi short story where all of those calculations happen on our behalf so we, we we're we never responsible
2: for the bad right. decisions we have to make <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm sure there's a thought experiment in there right where like a, Everything I – every choice I make, like, I just, like, run that through an algorithm, mm. and it tells me which choice is going to create the greatest utility, and then I just yeah. do that.
0: And it could be something you like to do, but it would be slightly worse for someone else, but that's okay because, hey, the machine told me to. Right.
2: Like, overall, it's positive. Or Dude. it might be something terrible, like, you have to torture this small child in order to, like, prevent an entire village from being blown up or something, right? And so, like, that, like, strips you of, like, any, um, you know, sort of ability to – make moral choices like relative to your own character you just become a, you just become sort of like a conduit of sounds utility like, sounds
1: like communism <laughs> so so um so does the bernard williams have a ethical moral framework that he well i don't proposes as no. you know uh, the, the better solution is because to some degree i feel like you know we're not getting out a spreadsheet and making a list of pros and cons of every action that we take but i think like on a practical level we are kind of going through our lives and evaluating every decision we make based on a balance sheet of the overall good and negative effects that those decisions are going to have whether it's you know, fairly isolated to ourselves, like, am I going to eat this burrito that's super delicious, but so delicious. it's kind of bad for me. Yeah. Um, I just did that, by the way. Yeah. Listeners That's <laughs> probably what I was <laughs> talking of mind, you know, <laughs> or, or or some other decision that's, that is going to increase, you know, my personal pleasure and maybe the personal pleasure of other people, but it's got some drawbacks. Like, I feel like we're all, we're, we're kind of constantly making those balancing decisions in our head, you know, from a moral standpoint. Well, let me answer the question about
2: Bernard Williams first, and I don't want to like make this a podcast about Bernard Williams because it's like this is uh, he he's a complicated figure, and he he did a lot more and than no just no one understands him. a woman, right? <laughs> <laughs> did you get that from the Wikipedia article? Huh? <laughs> what you talking about? Which is my Williams? <laughs> <laughs> so the answer to your question is no. He actually did not propose. Like All alternate. Alternate, that was a that was a shaft reference. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did actually
0: that was a, a different strokes
2: reference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what?
0: What, what you, talking you talking about,
1: about Williams? What are you talking about, Willis? What you talking about, Williams? Oh, so you parlayed my shaft sing along reference yeah. into a different strokes reference? Or... Same thing applies. Okay, so for everybody <laughs> under thirty, that was a shaft reference followed by... followed by a different strokes <laughs> reference. Um,
2: so I, I mean, sidebar: Williams did a- actually did not believe that you could create a structured, coherent, universal, complete moral theory, and so he was a critique of a wide range of of moral theories and of uh, the philosophy of ethics in ge- of ethics in general, but. Leaving that aside, to your point about aren't we always just sort of, like, trying to do the the back-of-the-envelope math on, like, which decisions are going to uh, maximize utility, there's a – that makes me think of a couple things. One, there's a critique of utilitarianism which says, well, nobody can actually do that math in their head. So it's, like, a bankrupt theory because it doesn't actually provide us a way – like, it doesn't provide us any, like – Actual guidance in the real world because we would just spend all of our try- time trying to like predict the outcomes of our actions, and that would be a futile effort because there are so many variables. And so, one of the, the responses um, from utilitarians to that point, and John Stuart Mills, who's kind of in, in some ways like one of our modern touch points for utilitarianism, if not the modern touch point. Um, he starts to formulate although he never calls it this the notion of rule utilitarianism which is that yes by and large we are trying to maximize utility um and that is the goal uh uh, that we have as moral agents but because we can't do all these complicated calculations every time we have a set of rules that we live by
1: that uh purport, purport yeah. to
2: maximize utility basically over time <clears>
1: you look at <throat> right you look at the major actions that you can take in life and say over time it's kind of been proven out that killing somebody leads to bad results so Don't as kill. a rule yeah as you as a, as a rule as a utilitarian rule killing people is bad so instead of trying to evaluate every single instance when i want to kill someone on a daily basis right no one's gonna blink at that. <laughs> no, no, no we, we yeah, know, you. Okay, right. we know you. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> instead of evaluating every single day, like whether or not um, killing somebody is good or bad, at every single turn, we just apply that rule as a as a society because over time it's proven out that killing people leads to bad bad things. Right. It,
0: it's a heuristic. It's a rule of thumb. It's like you don't always yeah. have to know exactly the mechanics of how the the black box of a rule of thumb works. You just know that it works for. 80% of the
2: situations. Uh... <laughs> right. But they, but so then the problem with that is those, the other 20% or whatever, right? So take a, a, a heuristic or a rule of thumb like don't tell lies, right? I mean, we can sit here and dream up all kinds of scenarios all day long in which we would all agree that it, the ethical thing to do is to tell a lie,
1: right? Mm-hmm. I just listened to an episode of 99% Invisible, and part of that story was about these two kids who were raised by psychologists or psychiatrists, I can't remember, like both their parents, and they were raised in this environment where everyone basically told the truth all the time, and the parents got divorced and uh, brought the kids to all of their therapy sessions. Oh my God. And so these two kids like (sighs) grew up, they interviewed them as adults, and they were basically like, didn't know how to function in the real world yeah. because they just told everyone they ran into exactly what they were thinking all the time. Jesus. And the and one of the brothers had basically decided that that was still the way that you should live your life, right. being honest 100% of the time with everybody. Right. And the other kid was basically decided that that is a bankrupt way of trying to live his life and it right. destroys all of his relationships. He's never been able to have a girlfriend because they go out on a date. And as soon as she does something that annoys him, he tells her. Right. This is really weird. I mean, he
0: he needs some basic rules of thumb of how how to talk to a woman.
1: (laughs) I think that you can- Mark's the man to provide. (laughs) In
0: a a handy laminated wallet card. (laughs)
2: Uh, You know, yeah, like, you know, the SS comes to your door and says, are you hiding any Jews in your house, right? The right thing to do is to lie and say no. So this heuristic of, like, don't tell lies- breaks down really fast. And the way that you're going to try to save it as a utilitarian is to say, well, don't tell lies except in cases where telling the lie will maximize utility. Hmm. Well, now you're back right back into the business of trying to calculate the utility. utility of any given lie you may or may not tell. And so that rule you can start to chip away at rule utilitarianism by saying, well, look, if if the whole point is to maximize utility, then You know, any rule you come up with, you're going to quickly come across exceptions to that, which uh,
1: very clearly lead to greater utility, and so you're just going to end up right back where you started. Did Bernard Bernard Williams just in the end basically say like, just go with your gut? (laughs) um no how did that how did he make any decisions if he couldn't find this sounds like one of those classic dudes who comes to every meeting with a bunch of problems and no solutions (laughs) yeah i think that we should definitely do an episode about
2: bernard williams because he's super interesting but i i i think we should stay on task here and talk about utilitarianism Okay. Because that that would be focus on
0: the outcomes of what we want to achieve. Right. Okay. <laughs> and maybe even the consequences.
1: Right. Uh so, so we just talked about rule utilitarianism. Right. So any other kind of utilitarianism? Well, the two major branches are rule utilitarianism
2: and act utilitarianism. And act utilitarianism is that we we kind of also talked about already. That's kind of the classical formulation, which is that every uh decision you make should be should be an attempt to maximize utility and 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 rule utilitarianism was developed as a response to the critics of act utilitarianism who said things like well you're never going to be able to like calculate the utility of each decision um, if you go down that path then you know you're going to spend every last moment of time in your life and every last penny you have trying to maximize utility because, you know, every time you're faced with a decision about whether to buy a Starbucks coffee or, you know, donate to charity, you're going to have to donate to charity. Like, you know, every single small decision in your life will be governed by this like overwhelming set of rules that are, you know, forcing you to maximize utility at every, every turn. Um, Yeah, I I read one – I'm not sure if there's
0: a comment thread on a discussion, but one one model was uh, equivalent to um, planning out a a, a cross-country road trip by – Uh, traveling on it on uh, side streets and street right and you know you have to plan out the entire trip to get there or you just you know look as far as your headlights can can tell you how far you're going and make sure you always follow the rule of like go east if you're going from los angeles to new york you just try to condense it down to an approachable set of, of rules
2: right and now the there's a whole other critique of utilitarianism in general and I guess we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but that utilitarianism or consequential consequentialism stands in contrast to another kind of moral theory um a set of moral theories called um deontic uh moral theories uh that that propose a set of rules that we should live by, and those rules often capture things that critics of utilitarianism. Claim that utilitarianism overlooks things concepts like justice and fairness, which are not really baked into utilitarianism, so I'll give you another thought experiment i think I think in the in the villagers one, there's this pretty strong temptation to say, if I can sacrifice the life of one person to save twenty, then that seems like a fair trade as much as I in the moment don't want to pull the trigger. A lot of people will say, yes, but if I step back and look at that scene, it might make sense to, to kill that one person. That's
1: Especially what... in that in that instance because the one person you're being asked to kill is going to die anyways. Yeah, It's just by whose hand. Right.
2: And they will all okay with that.
1: Okay. So let me
2: give you a different one. Okay. So imagine that there are six patients in a hospital. Uh, five of them are going to die without an organ transplant. It just so happens that one of them needs a liver, one of them needs a heart, one of them needs kidneys, one of them needs lungs. There's a sixth person. So those people are patients, are one patients one through five in rooms one through five. There's a sixth patient who, uh, if we kill him, will be able to harvest his organs and save all five of those other people. So now the question is, if you are... The a doctor at that hospital. Why yeah. should you not? Not, not for long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on. Maybe it's a you know the hospital of utilitarianism. Oh, don't
1: fucking <laughs> me into that place. <laughs> <laughs> um, you need to be really sick to get you to want to go there because <laughs> right. that, that like now you're on the other side of right. right. Better chance that you're on the other side of the coin in terms of. Uh, not being murdered to save somebody. Okay, so now this is like a slightly different scenario,
2: right, in which you are going to have to kill an innocent person who is not going to otherwise
0: die. not Yeah,
2: I mean, he came to the hospital for you to, like, help him, Hmm. right? But now you're going to kill him in order to save these other five people. And this seems like a harder... From a utilitarian perspective, it still seems like, yeah, we should kill this guy and harvest his organs because it's like you know, one person versus five, you know, if we're if we're looking at sort of like the aggregate uh, pleasure across these six people, then, you know, we'd rather have five persons, like five persons worth of pleasure or happiness than one person's worth of pleasure or happiness. So we definitely need to kill this dude and harvest his organs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one potential argument uh, against killing that person to harvest their organs even from a utilitarian standpoint and maybe this is just me looking for a loophole in this thought experiment is that that's what thought experiments are all about as, as soon as you start to make that decision and then imagine those types of decisions being made broadly across society pretty soon everybody finds themselves living in a world where it's really hard to be happy at all at any point in time because at any point in time your life could be snatched away or bad things can happen to you because it maximizes the utility of the greater group. And you just seem to be kind of living at the whim of the master computer, you know, that is larger society making decisions about the overall benefit of the group. And it seems like a pretty horrible place to live. Like maximizing, if the goal is to maximize the happiness or the lack of pain you know, like imagine all the people that are, you know, terrified every time. Everybody who goes into the hospital is terrified <laughs> that that's going to happen. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> so it's like now you're causing pain, like mental pain to every single person every time they enter a hospital because God knows if or doctor knows if. <laughs> you know, you're going to be harvested to save a bunch of other random people. Yeah. Can, can I actually just bring up, and I know this is actually crossing
0: over one of our internal rules or heuristics on the oh, podcast. Oh, man. Are the you going to bring it sci-fi? Are you talk
1: about The Matrix? Uh, no, you talk I'm about not, The Matrix? No, no. I'm, oh, I'm going to talk it. about a, <laughs> a,
0: a classic uh, Trek episode where uh, Captain oh. James T. Kirk and his, and his crew arrive on this planet that... Um,
2: You know that somebody else already wrote the book, The Philosophy of Star Trek. And
1: also, (laughs) I passed up an opportunity to talk about a Voyager episode that I saw recently like five minutes ago. So go for it. All right, Mark, I've given you a...
2: See? For those listeners at home who don't know, there is an explicit uh, rule around the podcasting table here to not use science fiction movies or television shows as examples to illustrate Philosophical points, and primarily the Matrix and Star Trek. I mean, those are those because are the... I feel like it's the easy way out. It's intellectually lazy, but Mark, yes. proceed with your intellectual laziness. <laughs> laziness,
0: yeah, delicious episode uh, where these two uh, these two warring factions on this planet have been uh, engaged in a war for generations. This is a Star Trek classic. Yeah, classics yeah. is, and they and they've actually evolved uh, to a utilitarian point of view right. that has uh, avoided any. Um, any uh, uh, issues where civilians are killed or any uh, uh, friendly fire. And they basically have one master computer, like so many of those classic episodes, had this master computer running their society. And it would evaluate and model out what a battle would look like between those two factions and then generate the most realistic outcome in terms of the number of casualties and dead on either side, then that number would just be broadcast to both sides. And <laughs> those number of, of individuals in the society would just go into a a large chamber and just get incinerated. And it was a very clean way to have a war, no no uh, unintended casualties, and they just carried on. The, the, the next battle would simulate how many casualties on either
1: side. And they just went along with it because that was the cleanest, most like, if you're gonna, way to do if it. If the same number of people die at the end of, 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 the, of the simulated war without the fun of the war... <laughs> or or all the side benefits. Okay. Well it like like, costs less money. Um yeah, Good. I mean maybe, but like think about think about how much money we made through the military industrial complex in World War II Like you lose all the benefits of jobs and advancement <laughs> of technology. Well, we well, wouldn't have gotten to the moon. They, they believe they they'd escalated
0: both sides so much they were so equally uh uh They uh, maxed stacked. out they maxed <laughs> out their <laughs> technological right. sophistication. So like Civ
1: five style, you've maxed out like your tech branch. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> what did Kirk do? He he, he, he broke. broke Who did he make out Did he with?
2: did he violate the Prime Directive? Yes. And yeah. He, and he, he
1: basically yeah.
0: his his tactic was your society is stupid and broke their computer. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> uh, no. The episode number will be in the show notes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I it's like hard for me to even believe that the Prime Directive uh, existed in classic Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, were, not that anybody pays attention to it in any of the other series, anyways, but.
2: No, it's like a like very common
1: plot point, yeah. right? Should we break the
2: prime directive or not? <laughs>
1: oops oh oops, we already did. <laughs> well I'm just <laughs> rolling it. Uh where where uh, were we? Yeah, you t- Mark, you gotta get back on track, Mark. <laughs> You um, sidetracked. So yeah, you back. you brought in Star Trek. You have to now do the hard work of bringing it back. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: rule versus act. Uh... Okay, so we
1: were talking about the people in the hospital. Yes. Uh, yeah. We're talking yeah, about yeah, the yeah. So, yeah. Uh, do I have to make another horrible choice on air and like publicly admit <laughs> yeah. that I'm going to harvest organs? Yes. Um, have we gotten to the part where this person's a serial killer? No. Okay. So potentially, if they're a serial killer, we're no. totally justified. If Look, if 80s horror movies told me everything, if this guy's a serial killer, <laughs> the right thing to do is not to harvest his organs and put them into anybody else, because <laughs> now you got yourself five, five serial, serial killers. killers. Man, i got a serial killer liver. Yeah. Yeah. Better drink this beer like a serial killer. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> what was uh, the one with the guy where he had an arm transplant from the serial killer? Oh, my and God. Like arm <laughs> uh, <clears throat> monkey shines or I don't know. It'll show, be <laughs> okay. Uh, well, fuck. So you're fi- just doing this because I'm the one yeah. that has to do the show notes. I right? failed. <laughs> I failed the first test, so don't kill that person. Yeah, uh, they're innocent, and they're not going to be killed anyway. So I don't sacrifice that person. I, I, I think Mark right, Sanders, MD. I, I think there's there's <laughs> a big
0: criticism in a lot of countries around the world, particularly ones um, managed by very dictatorial governments, where uh, this is a routine practice. The fact that dissidents in China. Are being harvested for the organs, yeah. so they can be given to you know high level party officials, uh, and and in that regard, a centralised um, uh, organisation which is uh, guided by the utility of an entire country
1: is making those decisions very clearly and plainly. Right? You, you just destroyed our our Chinese iTunes ratings. Yeah. <laughs> Uh,
2: damn. which are
0: super high right now so <laughs> thanks a lot uh, for the Chinese audience please email Paco Allen.
2: yeah all right <laughs> uh, so I mean so wait so
1: you're you are I, you're you're killing the guy oh no, or... no so no, why no. not uh well b- one because I I failed the first test right so I gotta make up for that um <laughs> I mean I think the big difference here is that that that, that person isn't isn't going to die anyways, right? Okay,
2: but let's now imagine that they are going to die. Like they've got
1: one organ that's failing, okay. and they're going to die. Mm-hmm. This sounds like one of those things where there's a rabbit, a fox, and a bag of meat <laughs> and a boat, and you got to get them all across. Uh, which organ of his is failing? <laughs> one that nobody wants? Yeah, exactly. One that nobody well,
0: wants. Well, if he opted into this in the same way that we opt into... No, our... he's
2: not. He doesn't want to go. You're, you're going to have to uh, literally visit. kill him with your own two hands. Is uh, there is
0: there a doctor who's just a couple of weeks before who? retirement and, and therefore was <laughs> no, no longer <laughs> going to be covered by any kind of legal discrimination? Sure. Yes, I will give you that and maybe doctor. And that, maybe that doctor only has a few weeks to live as well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, okay. But the... <laughs> the point is uh you know there's some moral agent some human who is going to have to walk into the room and against this person's wishes effectively murder them right because we already
0: have in terms of, uh, of the donation banks we have um, uh, rules decision-making capabilities around utility and the fact that if if sure if if a liver or heart was made available it's gonna be prioritized to someone yeah. who's young rather than someone who's old who, who has a history of other deteriorating yeah. diseases
1: well uh, this is also like a, a huge uh political ethical moral debate in your home country when it comes to liver transplants in particular australia uh, Austra- Australia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Thank you viewers who assumed um, that I was from Australia. Um, because of uh, drinking alcoholism and cirrhosis of the liver and the number of people who, I mean, it's crazy that, that, that there's that much hard drinking going on in the UK, but the number of liver transplants that are needed because of people who have liver disease and cirrhosis of the liver from like a lifetime of hard, hard drinking, Yeah, uh, you know, like they are, there's debates about laws about whether or not people shouldn't be allowed to be put on the lists for yeah. liver transplants if it's basically like self-inflicted right. liver disease. So, Paco, you are gonna murder? No, the I'm not. You're I'm not gonna. <laughs> this is like the third time you've tried to get me to say that I'm gonna murder the patient. Uh, I'm not. No, I wa- <clears throat> what I want you to tell me is why you're not going to. Um, I you know I don't know. It's uh, it's really difficult to. Like, specify why that feels differently than the villain. So, are we at the point now where this person is gonna die, anyways? They're gonna die like a year from
2: now. Okay. You're going to have to end their life prematurely against their will. No, nope.
0: And if that person wasn't there, all of those five other people would are have gonna die. died anyway.
2: Yeah, they're gonna die anyway, yeah. So it for, I mean, and, and I think the reason we resist the utilitarian impulse to sacrifice this one person is because we, um, again, there's this notion that we are not just conduits of the utilitarian algorithm, right? We are, we are sentient, self-aware beings who need, uh, A reason to act um i I said i wasn't going to go back to bernard williams but he says that like any uh any uh plausible moral theory needs to be one that is magnetic that that actually has like a pull for us like we're that actually utilitarianism just doesn't work as a moral theory because no one would ever like actually like it's just not how we view the world fundamentally like we have some concepts such as fairness and justice that are kind of baked into the way that we view the world and it's not possible to counteract those through the construction of some abstract moral theory so there's like a fundamental like principle of justice and the importance of human life that's going to prevent you from killing this guy despite the fact that there is some mildly attractive moral framework called utilitarianism that seems to work out in the right way in lots of other cases.
0: It's like an attribute of of, of a functional utilitarian uh, paradigm must be its own utility, which is where fairness and justice have a prevailing value because they're those magnetic right um, uh, systems that, that means we will actually use a... Uh, uh, an approach, a, a theory, a, a way to manifest our, our expression of our of our lives and our, our culture in a way that makes sense to us.
1: But are, are, are frameworks like utilitarianism, I mean, are, do those exist to try to describe how we make moral and ethical decisions in our lives? Or is it an exercise in trying to develop a system that makes us behave it's better the,
2: it's the latter so it's definitely normative and not descriptive it's it's prescriptive it's it's saying we should behave this way and the and the reason it exists is because like as critical thinkers we want to have a consistency about the way that we interact with the world right we want yeah. to be able to say I'm making this decision in this scenario for these reasons, not just I'm doing this because I
1: feel like it. And you want to be able to say you've made the right decision or you've made the wrong decision. like You deserve some kind of punishment or you deserve some kind of reward because you've made a decision. But I mean, so I kind of reject the idea then that it needs to be magnetic, that it needs to be the kind of thing, if I'm understanding the the description of of how he's using the word magnetic properly, there are a lot of things that are better for you to do that aren't magnetic. Right. And like a lot of times it's overcoming, trying to overcome our, you know, like biological programming, you know, like we live in a world in the Western world now where our food is a completely different type of nutrients than what our body evolved to consume. And we still crave things that are sweet and sugary and still crave carbohydrate because there wasn't a huge availability of that stuff, you know, before agriculture and manufacturing. So now we have to, like, overcome that built-in urge and desire and kind of go against what feels natural and feels magnetic or feels good to do the right thing. Right. I don't know why it would be...
2: And I guess the thing we so we, we I keep coming back to Bernard Williams because I think he's like a really complex, interesting figure in 20th century philosophy. But the thing the 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 person that you would usually talk the most about in this discussion when uh, trying to sort of uh, distinguish other moral theories from utilitarianism is Immanuel Kant, and so he's kind of the classic deontological philosopher who believed that rules should be that that moral frameworks should consist of rules and and so the kant's categorical categorical imperative is like that's the thing that he's most well known for in moral philosophy and it basically says something along the lines of take any moral decision that you have to make if the if that decision were to become a, a rule or sort of like a guideline for how everyone else should behave then that is probably a then that's a good rule, right? So he talks about this idea of like your decision becoming like, uh, you know, manifested in the world as a rule, and like if that, it, and so that then becomes kind of the guidepost as opposed to does it maximize utility?
1: It's pretty golden ruleish. It is very golden ruleish. Was yeah. he, he was German, right?
0: Phil's German. Sorry, Germans. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chinese. Sorry, Germans. Sorry, uh, South American village.
2: (laughs) It wasn't placed in South America. (laughs) Well, Bernard Williams' original formulation of the villager thought experiment was placed in South America. But I stripped all of that out. But thanks, Mark.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Feel free to go read his extremely insensitive original thought experiment. (laughs) See See show show notes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, yeah, I mean, I'm glad we brought Kant into the discussion at the very end but I because I think we should kind of like wrap up and get to some of the history of ideas, stuff that we wanted to talk about in the second half of the show. But we will come back to Bernard Williams at a later date uh, because I'm a big fan, um, and I think that he helps us get out of this jam that we find ourselves in where we can only choose between utilitarianism on the one hand – and rigid rule-based systems on the other hand because if we do if we talk about Kant and we like go down the rabbit hole of the categorical imperative you'll also find yourself in a situation where these hard and fast rules that you have to set for yourself start to break down
1: sweet all right awesome to the mid-show break
0: Hey, everyone, it's Mark. We just wanted to take a few seconds and thank everyone for listening. And if you're enjoying the show so far, there's something we'd like to ask you to do to help us out. Head over to iTunes and give us a review. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Ratings, reviews and subscriptions are the main factors that determine whether we get noticed and the podcast becomes a weekly fixture in your ears. We'd really appreciate the support. Now back to the show.
2: So I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of contemporary utilitarianism. And so, like, if you take a introduction to ethics course, you're probably going to read a book by John Stuart Mill called Utilitarianism, uh, which he wrote in 1861. And his story is kind of interesting. His father, James Mill, uh, was a friend of uh, Jeremy Bentham. Who was a moral philosopher, who was really kind of the uh, first contemporary 19th century philosopher to frame utilitarianism in the way that we currently understand it. So, one of the interesting things about this sort of history of um, of utilitarianism in the in the 19th century is that so James Mill uh, was John Stuart Mill's father. He was friends with Bentham, who was the really the first utilitarian scholar uh, and james mill really felt that and and bentham also like felt that this philosophical uh framework was important because of its implications for politics and social justice um and and um social reform and so james mill for example uh was um, a political activist, um, and he was a one of the driving forces behind the Reform Act um, in in Britain in 1832, which kind of expanded voting rights to include uh, more working class people in urban areas and um, uh, reduced the um, amount of power that was uh, held by the money classes who lived on their estates out in the country and so he really felt that utilitarianism this sort of max smoothing out of like pleasure or utility across the greatest number of people was like not just like a moral framework but also like a uh, a, a, a guideline for how to construct laws and um, uh, you know kind of like organized guide politics and yeah. organized society and so it the story is a little creepy though because he basically decided that the pursuit and advancement of this philosophical framework was so important that when his son John Stuart Mill was born he basically groomed him from day one to be a Jeremy Bentham acolyte and basically decided that his son was going to sort of carry the flag forward for utilitarianism. And so John Stuart Mill, who wrote the textbook on utilitarianism, didn't just sort of accidentally come by that. Like, he was raised from early childhood to be the 19th century kind of conduit of utilitarianism.
0: Do do you think there's at all a a, a reaction to the... Uh, to Darwin's theory of evolution that came up at roughly that, that same time, kind of mid-19th century, that really exposed the certain fundamentals of the fact that we are descended from animals that uh, you know were red in tooth and claw and the fact that there was a, a political and social aspiration for us as a species to be,
2: uh, to be better than that, to have certain systems like this in place that we were aware of. Um, potentially. I mean, I've never read anything that, draws that link specifically but i cer- you could certainly like i think thread that needle like there's definitely from jeremy bentham's perspective and from james mills perspective there was a concrete political reason to espouse this kind of this utilitarian moral philosophy and actually they 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 sort of in the kind of History of ideas surrounding utilitarianism, a lot of people contrast it to the ideals that came out of the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. which were very much about sort of personal liberty and freedom and justice. I was just going to bring it up. And, you know, that like didn't necessarily work all out all that well for a lot of people. And so the utilitarian point of view in some ways was like a a reaction to that.
0: Although I guess you could see a direct thread into um, the, the American Republic in terms of life, liberty and the pursuit
2: of freedom. Yeah, happiness. <laughs> <laughs> the maximization of happiness. Um, yeah. So, it, so anyway, I just thought it was really interesting that I never knew that about John Stuart Mill. Like, he basically like he didn't go to school. He didn't have friends when he was a kid. He was basically like he was just learning how to be John Stuart yes, Mill. He was lo- yes, and like, he had a nervous breakdown when he was twenty, yeah. which he attributes to the fact that like he had no friends and like no life, and all he did all the time was study um so anyway like really interesting story of this kind of like manufactured philosopher and then one other one other interesting thing real quick about jeremy bentham and all all, actually before i say that all these guys by the way were um i think what we would consider very progressive for their time like in the mid 1800s they were pro-women's suffrage jeremy bentham actually spoke out against the mistreatment of homosexuals they were anti-slavery um there like were even like hints of like animal rights in their in their writings. So that's like utilitarian sort of uh, strain led them to a lot of thoughts about equality across a whole like range of issues. Jeremy Bentham, this is the last thing I'll say about him, uh, had uh, was kind of a weird guy. And one of the things that he had in his will is that he wanted his body to be mummified. And kept that is going into my will. (laughs) So he he put in his will that he he wanted his body to be mummified um, and to be um, placed on display. And and this actually happened. um, And you can go see it today at the University College in London. I would have to um, say
0: his head. That's not the original head. Because, it's not the original head because students used to like just pick it up and just <laughs> right. like mess what? around yeah. with
2: it. So the, the head used to be the subject of many campus pranks, and so now it's like a it's a fake head. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's like his like original clothes. And, and he used and... to he used to be rolled out for meetings. Yeah. Well, it still is. It's it's still rolled out for meetings um, of the uh, college council. I think it still is um and 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 Jeremy Bentham would be listed in the meeting <laughs> <Nuts>. <laughs> as present but not voting <laughs> <laughs> So my my one question I had for you about Jeremy Bentham. They
1: should okay. let him vote with a Ouija board <laughs> if they're going to do that kind of shit. Just like roll yeah, out the body, know when he's vote, right? bring he's out the bring out the imagine. Ouija board. Oh, Jeremy. Yeah. utilitarian <laughs> votes. Yeah. He's
2: always going to vote to maximize utility. Yeah, right?
1: but then you got to do the math on like what is the actual yeah. maximum utility, and the only way to get that answer is through from the afterlife through the Ouija board. <laughs> so talking of the afterlife,
0: uh, you you watched Lost uh, listeners. I'm going to give a Lost spoiler for the last season. Oh. Uh, Uh, spoiler alert Locke dies (laughs) Locke Locke the character Locke who's named after a moral philosopher when he's dead uses another pseudonym in his obituary uh, of Jeremy Bentham oh yeah what, what, what's the, what was there any significance with John Locke taking on board the the the, the identity of Jeremy Bentham when he's dead? Know,
1: hold on, let me call JJ Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah good fucking luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good luck getting a straight answer about what the fuck that show is about. That I, the only thing I thought was
0: the fact that his his dead body is like such a uh, uh prop. Yeah, through the most of that season, it's almost like he is being wheeled out, like Jeremy Bentham, like that's his note to everyone else: "Hey, <laughs> move move me into Man. the scenes whenever possible."
1: No, like after season three, basically anybody knew that they introduced on that show, they just gave them the name of a famous scientist or philosopher, <laughs> just so that you could go down the path of trying to figure out what that meant. Conspiracy. Wikipedia, it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Faraday, yeah, bring him in. <laughs>
2: <clears throat> uh, so that's that's what I wanted to talk about. I think. Because there was that sort of political thread in the politics of of James Mill and then his son John Stuart Mill and and, and Jeremy Bentham, that might lead into what you want to talk about, Paco, Which is yeah, if only there
1: had been a lost character named Machiavelli, you know, be like smooth <laughs> transition into what I was going to talk about. Um, yeah, so one of the things that you know we came across in reading about this topic. Um obviously, is famous Italian from the Renaissance period who's credited as being one of the fathers of modern political philosophy and, you know, is credited with the the notion of the ends justify the means, you know, which is a paraphrase, I think of of what he wrote. It's one of those weird things like um, you know, Sherlock Holmes never said uh, elementary, my dear Watson. but where where that paraphrase comes from is this book that he wrote called The Prince, which, was basically kind of like a rule book for politicians about how to acquire and maintain power. And it's, you know, a really kind of cold-hearted, cold-blooded set of rules about, you know, kind of do whatever you need to do to acquire and maintain power. And, you know, I think he's an interesting person because, like all men who lived in the renaissance was kind of a quote-unquote renaissance man and wasn't just this i never uh, thought of that before (laughs) everyone was a renaissance (laughs) all you had to do is be alive um i mean like 1650 you would have been a renaissance seemingly kind of because he wasn't just a a, like a politician or you know somebody who hung around in the back rooms of um you know the the castles and gave advice to whoever was in power he's also a military tactician which is obviously high, heavily related, but also obviously a writer, but not just a writer of, you know, political materials, but also wrote plays and wrote and wrote But didn't he also, I mean, isn't part of this that, like,
2: he thought that it, like, he accumulated his power because he ultimately believed that it was the responsibility of the state to provide for the well-being of its citizens and that you could only do that if you had consolidated power. I mean, I think the reason he comes up in this conversation and the reason that i think he's related to james mill in some ways is because he was essentially saying like do whatever you need to do to to hold on to your power because that is what will allow you to create a good society that is
1: fair and just like other like the other
2: option is like basically anarchy
1: yeah no i mean i think i think that's 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 why he comes up in this conversation for me, the most interesting thing about it, uh, which I was about to get to, is um, there is a lot of contemporary analysis of his writing and his work that concludes that it was not a rule that what he like the prince wasn't a rule book for monarchs and royal families about how to gain and maintain power. It was satire, and it wasn't written for those people because those people already knew the rules. Right. It was written for the masses to basically say this is how the political system works and it sucks and it's evil. And if you want to fight against it, these are the rules that these guys are playing by uh, because he, he was, was like a double agent. Yeah. Be- well, basically because, and, and, you know, who knows, I think like at some part in his point in his life, you know, he, that, that may have been the way that he was operating. And if he had writ- written, the prints earlier on in his life, that may have been what his motives were. But he, you know, he basically w- saw, You know, he worked for different, he worked for the Borgias, he worked for the Medici, and he saw the Medici go out of power and come back into power. And when they did, they arrested him and tortured him for three weeks, you know, hung him by, I can't remember what it's called, but they basically like tie your hands behind your back and then hang you by your hands so that it dislocates both your shoulders. And then when he like got out of that, it was like, "All right, I'm writing the prince." Right, and he he wrote it in exile, like he was no longer yeah. on the ups. So I just th- I just think it's interesting because y- you know yeah. the 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 thing that he's best known for, which is w- which is kind of that book, um, or or you know the thinking from that book. I don't think that many people actually like read that that book. It's just kind of the the teachings or the rules that are right. in that book that he's known for. At one point, I think in his life he may have believed in all of that and thought that this is this is how you acquire power so that you can rule over people and you know Anakin sty- Skywalker style like make all the decisions <laughs> for everybody and like rule an empire god those movies were bad um yeah, they're it, you so know terrible. but 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 in the end the you know when he actually put pen to paper and wrote that stuff down he was potentially doing it from the opposite perspective kind of having sure. learned why that is a bad way of of operating from a political and, and government governmental standpoint and writing it as as satire yeah we uh we forget um how the context of uh things
0: change over time um who is the who's the italian dictator during world war ii um mussolini mussolini like the quote is you know uh the the dictator is running the country but at least the trains run on time right we, we think of that as a you know as a as a uh, you know, the minor benefits of, of a structured, very dictatorial right. organization. But the joke was at the time the trades never ran on time. He was bad <laughs> at that too. Like we don't get that joke because we weren't aware of that right. particular contextual yeah, piece of history. Yeah,
2: yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah. So my uh, my piece uh, when I, we uh, I wanted to look at uh, the idea of utilitarianism uh, in terms of the ends justify the means to follow the Machiavelli um, uh, apocryphal uh, quotation was uh, looking at the state of modern Scrabble of all things. <laughs> 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 I, I, was, I almost
2: brought this topic to you. A consequentialist Scrabble? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> like Scrabble was a, a very oh, uh, educated
0: yeah. uh game uh about um you know word literacy on the board. Literacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, like Queen Victoria played it. It was a you know a huge, huge viral trend. Um, and even now um competitive uh, scrabble playing in the u k is not about uh defeating the other opponent but it 's about uh what is the maximum high score you can achieve together right. as two players right. that you can kind of build on each other but what 's happening is that some of the the biggest and most successful um competitive scrabble players now uh don 't even um, have English as their first language, right. they and just know. Uh, they just just know the the yeah. sequence of, of of tiles of quote unquote game pieces that need to be arranged in a certain order to to win. And they're uh, disintermediated from the the quote unquote you know quote unquote moral objective of improving your literacy All or right. enjoying the the, the <laughs> linguistic value of of being able to stem these words yeah. into other variations. And uh, I've played
2: Scrabble with some like that (laughs) because there's a lot of defensive playing too right of like i know that if i play this word here then you will never be able to play any word (laughs) (laughs) from from the utilitarian (laughs) point that is
0: a successful strategy because you can win you can achieve more points
2: yep and i yeah that's really interesting because yeah i mean if you look at a scrabble dictionary now it's like full of insane like two three and 19 letter words or whatever yeah. that are just like not yeah, words or, that uh, anyone knows unless they're Scrabble players.
0: And any, any, averagely good, um, Scrabble player, uh,
2: averagely uh, good,
1: averagely good, you know, not, not, not a, not a beginner, <laughs> but not a, not a professional. Um, it,
0: it, uh, all of them, um, memorize all of the two letter yeah. words. There's only a certain, there's only like 30 of them. Yeah. And you just have to memorize them as if they're yeah. just, You know, like how does a pawn move like this? Memorize the two letter words, right? And it it changed the nature of what the game was intended and how people play it, even to the point that there's a great I don't believe it's a TED talk, I believe it's an Ignite talk. See show notes for details where uh, (laughs) uh, an individual um, uh, shows you how to win at Scrabble by basically um, um, hustling Scrabble uh, in terms of you know, forcing. People to challenge you for oh, words God, yeah. that they <laughs> you would like them to think aren't real words right. by your body language and your demeanor and your playing style and your frequency and your cadence and the time you take and the choices wow. you make in order to gain the benefit of that um, misattributed challenge. So, from a utilitarian point of view, Scrabble is a wholly different game.
1: Yeah, really nerdy and not very fun. Yeah, one. I mean. Are you describing it the way it was or the way it is now? Because <laughs> I kind of feel like... <laughs> I, I highly recommend
0: uh, uh, to drop a name. Uh, Stefan Fatsis uh, wrote the definitive book uh, on uh, Modern Scrabble, uh, Word Freak, that was actually turned into a documentary, which has a, a great uh, take on the utilitarian aspect of gameplay.
2: Interesting. Well, I'm going to go watch it right now.
1: That wraps it up for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating in iTunes. As always, you can find us online at you got it all where you can find show notes for today's episode. You can also send us an email to feedback at you've got it all with questions, comments, or recommendations for show topics. And you can also follow us on Twitter, I'm at Paco Allen.
2: I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at
0: an M. Sanders.